Dense in grad school loans. <laughs> We're talking about that nickel word job, the waiting for the sun to shine on my career again gig, the crank out BS for cash hustle. We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle and Jason Bieber. And on this episode, we are talking to, oh my God, <laughs> we are talking to my idol, dare I say, my hero. <laughs> Fuck, why are we doing this? Why did you invite me and fight him on the podcast? I told you we should just take him and his wife out to dinner. But, I know. You know. That's weird. <laughs> too late. <laughs> too late. He's in our living room. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a New York Times best-selling author. The co-creator and co-host of the wildly successful podcast, Literary Disco, which was actually named one of the best literary uh, podcasts in the world. And he is the director of the Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing Program at the University of California, Riverside's Palm Desert, California campus. What up? Which is where I go to school. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Todd Goldberg! Yeah. I'm super excited to be here. What a day. What a dream. Is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse? It's late enough at night for us that we just think you are dreaming. Look, so listeners, we're recording this podcast at the bedtime for people with young children, which I don't, I don't have young children, so I can stay up all night talking funny. But these two are punch drunk with the raising of a child at nine o'clock at night. I just have to tell you guys, when um, Todd sent us his two, like, two of the side gigs he was going to talk about and how, like, crazy weird they were, I started going down this path that I had forgotten about some of these jobs that I had done that are very similar in nature, but not quite, but they inspired a lot. We're going to talk about that. I had, I had another side gig that I didn't tell you guys about, but it was, oh, before, it was before I was actually uh, pursuing my art. I was just in college yeah. and we, we would do concert security and, uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm a pretty imposing figure. I mean, intellectually imposing, physically not so much, but, uh, we ended up getting uh, told that we were going to be doing security at a reggae concert, but it actually ended up that they had hired a fraternity of Jews to do security for a Farrakhan rally. And that was an interesting experience. I just want to know who is the security, head of security who's like, I want all Jews. It was an unusual experience. And I like in the last 25 years since this happened, I've had that question of like, like, who was the guy who was like, let, get me the Jewish fraternity at Cal State Northridge. They'll provide the security for, for Minister Farrakhan. <laughs> get me the Jews. It's like, Did you black that out at some point ever? Were you like, I can't, I can't tell people this happened. Well, you know, what's funny is, um, Sometimes I like I have to ask myself, did that really happen? Right, like, that's we, what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, because it's number one, I was super drunk when I did it because I was I was 20. We thought you were going to a reggae concert, right? We thought so. We got loaded in the parking lot before we walked into the LA Coliseum, and like I'm like, where's Sunsplash? Like, where's where's Ziggy Marley? And uh, <laughs> so like I parts of it seemed a little hazy in my mind. And then I was talking about it with another friend of mine. And I was like, we did security for a Farrakhan rally, right? Like that happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. And my friend Vitaly, who's a, a lawyer now in Los Angeles, 
and he's he's always been a very small man of stature he's about five foot three and we were uh at this farrakhan rally and we didn't know yet it was a farrakhan rally and it was all these jews to provide security for minister farrakhan and like we finally it finally dawns on us like what we're supposed to be doing and there's about fifty thousand people surrounding us at this point and vitaly says farrakhan farrakhan i hate that fucking guy and i was like <laughs> And it was like dead silence. And I was like, well, oh my God, dude, I'm about to right die. Here. I'm going to die an ironic death. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a really poorly thought out sequel to Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bad situation. So we ended up leaving in the middle when they started calling out the Jew devil. That's when mm-hmm. we left. <laughs> like, you know what? Security wise, I think you guys are good. You, you know what the other amazing thing is that I had forgotten about and then my friend reminded me is so before Farrakhan got up to speak they there was a full rally public enemy played the public enemy show was cool that was nice yeah. um, and then they started taking donations for uh, the nation of Islam and they'd say oh we have another donation from a youth group the 6th street Piru Crips donate $10,000 and I'd be like did they just say a youth group, the Piru Crips, just donated $10,000? And then it'd be like, the Grape Street Bloods donate $15,000. Thank you, youth groups of Los Angeles. And I was like, we got to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) What is happening? Everything. Everything was happening all at once. There was money laundering. Right. uh, I have a story that that falls into that category. Yeah, when when I first got here and- Why um, do you have any stories that fall into that category? I always do, because I've had like a million and one jobs, but I signed with an acting agency. I literally had to audition for them. Like, you know, I had to bring in like a soap opera scene, a comedy scene. So it wasn't like, you know, I just gave them money and signed. No, no, this was a legit agency. But she also on the side, because she had a side hustle, she would do those things where, you know, at the bar, there's girls that are passing out, like, shots. Right, like a Zima spread. girl. Like a Zima girl. <laughs> so she did things like that. Like, she, So she kept trying to get me to do these things. And I was like, okay. So I did one where it was for, like, cellular one. No, that's not a thing. It's like Sprint. I did something for Sprint once at a bar. And then once, she was like, you were so great at that. Yeah. You were so, I don't know. She's like, you were so Hi. great at it. Um, she I had was, a shot of cell phones. Listen, listen. The football players from San Diego were having something. They were doing something in LA. The Chargers. Yes, <laughs> and she was like, she was like, and I need like twelve girls to work as escorts as dates for like twelve of the football players that are like not the front guys. And I was like, so you want me to be a paid escort? And she's like, no, it's a hosting gig. And I'm like. It was rape bait. What am I hosting? I said no. Jason, did you say you're rape bait? Yes, he did say that. <laughs> this is what I live with. Um, so I said no, and she dropped me from the agency. Y'all. Oh that my fits along those lines, though, right? You finally like, put your foot down. You're like, well, I gotta go. I don't know if, I don't know if providing... Uh, Providing security for a man who wants you dead That's or true. being hired to be a hooker are, are, are similar. But I can see where if you had some sort of brain issue, you'd tie the two together. Are we bringing this full circle again? Don't if I had a banner that said unsavory jobs, maybe both of those fall under that category. Yeah. On the upside, when I had the same job, I saw 
the Rolling Stones with Guns N' Roses opening up for them. And I was assigned yes. to the front of the stadium. And so I got there and I just took off my security shirt and sat down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you did. That was a I good game. that too. That was yeah, good. that was. You mess with you, your security. That's awesome. You know but, what you can do? I have a, I'm a event staff, I can do anything. It's the key to the city. <laughs> it's a pretty good get. It's, you could also just get like a glow, you know, a yellow vest and just right. walk around anywhere. Anyone wearing a vest and carrying a clipboard, that's carte blanche in America mm -hmm. these days. If you can get yourself like a proper headset, done. Isn't there what, a movie where they, they did that? Probably. Mm -hmm. I probably. I'm probably stealing from someone's experience on YouTube. That's true. Um, <laughs> but listen, for real, there's these two jobs that you did that really sparked a lot for me. One is um, the infomercial job. Yes. Because I was an actress in infomercials in my early years out here. So I want to hear, were you the jackass writing the stuff that I had to recite off a teleprompter for an infomercial? <laughs> well, my job working for the infomercial company uh, was twofold. So I, uh, I, would, I wouldn't write the actual infomercials themselves. I'd have to write the copy for the call to action. So I wasn't writing what- um, Like what like comes what, up on the screen? Yes, I was writing that. I wasn't writing what Ed McMahon was saying. And we'll get to Ed McMahon in a second. Oh. Um, so I, I would, I, so as an account executive running an infomercial, you would, you know, you'd handle all that backend stuff. You'd write the stuff you had to write, but then you'd also choose the media. So you'd decide like where the infomercial is gonna run and all this stuff. And I had this job for, Gosh, I guess a year and a half. This, this was when was I was working. For or after you wrote your first book? This was while I was writing my first book. Okay. So this was in the uh, late 1990s. And so it was an infomercial company um, in Santa Monica. And the people that ran it, it turns out, were all the acolytes of a, um, a cult in Austin, Texas, a sex cult run by an Indian man who eventually was arrested and everyone involved with the infomercial company put up his $10 million bail was to it get Bikram? him out of, pardon me? Bikram, Bikram yoga? No, not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I had been better prepared to look this guy's name up, I'll, I'll do that in a second. Um, they put up, the t put up a $10 million bond to get this guy out of prison. And he of course skipped the country. And so they leaving these infomercial impresarios with a $10 million bond that they had to forfeit because this guy left the country. But that was years after I had stopped working there. But we, we began to find out that the company was owned by a cult because <laughs> they, they operated their own call center. So I've got lots of stories, but this is, this, this is just your opening nugget. So there was a call center that the infomercial company used in Austin, Texas. And the way infomercial companies work is infomercial advertising agencies often also create the products themselves. So that's how Ronco made all of their money. Ronco mm -hmm. sold it, Ronco created it, Ronco right. developed new products. Um, so the company that I worked for uh, was called uh, Williams Worldwide. And they had uh, this contract with a company called um, American Television which was run out of the cult compound in Austin, Texas, that the cult leader ran. And so we got these super cheap rates from this call center because all the people in there were involved in the cult, so they weren't getting paid. They were just working for the cult. 
so you wouldn't have to cut in the telemarketers for the profits on these things. Oh my God. And I found that out like a year into working there. And there was, uh, it was such a shady thing, but the, the way that I really found out that things were going south there is they had a full, a full floor of the building devoted to a cafeteria and, and free food and stuff. Like that was one of the key things for me. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> there's breakfast here? Absolutely. So the, the person who was running the company, um, there had been like an FBI thing where people came and took our computers. So there was, there was some sort of shady thing with that. But you were uh, in Texas working for them. No, this is in Santa Monica. This is in Santa Monica. But she, the woman who ran the company, she calls a big meeting and we're in the cafeteria. And this is when I knew things were getting dark. She's like, I'm, I'm afraid to say no more free food, no more free bagels. And I was oh, like, no. Oh, oh no. Whoa. But That's not good. No fucking why my does the free food go away? Like, we gotta, we've, we've lost a lot of money. Oh. We got to get rid of the free food. The reason they lost money, though. So, okay, let, can, can I tell you the, the genesis of me getting this job? I suppose you want to know this. Yeah, I do, but I, I also am very curious what the product was and if it was one I would recognize. So there was a ton of products. And okay. the product that brought the company down was a product called the Bun and Thigh Sculptor. Um, but, and so I worked on the Bun and Thigh Sculptor. Uh, that tracks, that tracks. Yeah. I worked on, uh, so there was a couple products I worked on. I worked on the Bun and Thigh Sculptor. I worked on the Sobakawa pillow, which was those pillows filled with rice. Do you remember those? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I worked on a thing called, this was my, one of my, this was my main client, was a thing called facial magic, which was a mask you put on your face and it had, it had D batteries on the inside and you'd strap this mask to your face and it was supposedly sending waves into your face to make you look younger. If I may, so you sold a product, which if you boil it down, you put a bunch of Ds on your face and it was for And it's facial magic, yeah. <laughs> and then the last product that I worked on for the infomercial company, my swan song, mm. was uh, Ed McMahon's Miracle Fryer. That was my shot at the big time, was Ed McMahon's Miracle Fryer. Oh my God. I had the full account because the guy who ran Ed McMahon's Miracle Fryer loved me, loved me. I was his protege. Mm -hmm. But by this time, the bun and thigh sculptor had run into some problems. And it was dragging the company down. And that's when I guess the FCC began to investigate their allegiances with the cult as well. The sculpting capabilities of, of the sculptor. So. FCC, people run into a lot of problems with the FCC. Yeah. So the bun and thigh sculptor was, um, it was like that, it was just a machine that you put between your legs. Yeah, and like the, the, press... the one Suzanne Summers did. Yeah. So it was just like that thing. Yeah. And so you'd press it back and forth and it was supposed to exercise you. The problem with the bun and thigh sculptor, and you can, you can provide links on your website to this when you Google the legal issues, is that there was a tension spring and a screw in the middle of the bun and thigh sculptor, and it began to shoot out oh. <laughs> at a high velocity and killing animals and small children. Oh, goodness. 
And so the company that made it and advertised through us uh, took like a $10 million loss and it was this huge problem. But like, I, so part of my job, because I was writing all the back end stuff, um, you know, someone would say, oh my God, a screw shot out of the butt and thigh sculpture and hit my kid and now he's bleeding. And so they'd call the 1-800 number they'd called to order the product. And they'd say, I need to talk to someone. The button thigh sculptor just killed my chihuahua. And the only contact information they'd have would be me. So, because I was the account executive. So they'd be like, oh, this is the number you should call. And so I'd be sitting at my desk downloading porn and music from Napster because we had mm -hmm. DSL at the office. Nice. So that's where I had my Napster account. That's where, yeah, I remember going into work and, and that's where I got all my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and the phone would ring and I'd be like, good afternoon, Williams Worldwide. They'd be like, but my dog's been impaled by a by the button thigh sculptor. I'd be like, hold please. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say to my uh the senior account executive whose name was Ruben, I'd be like, hey Ruben, there's someone on the phone who uh their mother-in-law got hit in the eye with the button thigh sculptor. Do you want to take that call? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you, Ruben. And then he'd go into his office and talk, and I, I wouldn't know what happened. So there was that. That's what drove the, the company down. But there were, there were two moments at which I knew that the company I was working for, um, outside of the no free bagels situation, was probably pretty shady. Um, the first has to do with the Sobakawa pillow. The so, rice pillow. The rice pillow. Okay. So... This was an era where people were like, get me pillows filled with food. That will be good for my neck. Yeah. Isn't it like dried like cherry pits and beans yeah. and rice? Like there's yeah. like a mixture, right? Right. It's like uh, it's like a oatmeal for your for your right. pillow. And so pets would get into them. Lentils. <laughs> so uh, I was the junior account executive on the Sobakawa pillow. And so one day I'm sitting at my desk downloading Come On Eileen through DSL so that I could finally have a copy of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, karaoke at your own home finally. Right. So the phone rings and there's a guy on the phone and uh, he says, he's speaking in Spanish. And I'm like, I don't, I don't speak Spanish, I don't speak Spanish. And he says, Soba Cala Pillow. We have a boat filled with Soba Cala Pillows and they're infested with vermin. And I was like, Hmm. Okay, hold on. <laughs> like, hey, uh, Ruben, uh, there's someone on the other line that says they're, they're on a boat and it's filled with Sobacala pillows and they're infested with vermin. And he's like, huh, okay. And so I'm standing next to Ruben and I hear him and he's speaking in Spanish and he's like, okay, 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 okay. And then he says something in Spanish and he says, okay, great. Okay, good, good, yeah, okay, perfect. And he hangs up the phone. And I said, what the hell was that? He says, oh, we, uh, we have a, a shipment of Soba Cow pillows on a, uh, a boat trying to dock in Chile and they're infested with vermin. And so the Chilean government won't let the boat dock. And so what I told them to do was set all the pillows on fire and dump them into the ocean. And I was like, I've oh got to get my, God. I've got to get my resume ready. <laughs> I I don't know. I feel like wherever you go, you got to take Reuben with you. Yeah. I'm, are you guys friends on Facebook? 
I'm gonna look him up. No, but um, Ruben doesn't do Facebook. There, I, I do have a Facebook friend who I did work with there. Uh, my wonderful friend Vanessa Osborne. And the weird thing is that Vanessa and I, when we were younger, had worked together at the Topanga Plaza Mall. I worked at the record store, and she worked at like Wicks and Sticks. Did and you we get were... each other this job? No, <laughs> no. We just had this, these jobs when you were 18, and uh, she was younger than me, and like she had remembered me all these years because I had gone with her to like some heroin party after work, yeah. and she was about to go do drugs, and I had stopped her from doing drugs or something, Good and job. so she'd always remembered me fondly. Um, but so then I got hired by this advertising agency, and she was like, wait, didn't we, don't I know you from Topanga Plaza 10 years ago? I got a story like that. I applied to grad school and Mark Haskell Smith is a professor there. Right. <laughs> and I was like, what? When you call, I was like, what? Um, but for the people listening, Mark Haskell Smith is a professor there, but he knew, you knew him beforehand. When I was a spin instructor, a spin instructor. He, was, he took my spin class. Um, Mark Haskell Smith, big time author, very funny man. Big time um, famous author. Huge. The famous author. Um, He's like Tom Clancy, but living. He doesn't know that I'm going to be reaching out to him to be on the show, too. Um, <laughs> He's had some good side hustles, actually. I believe it. <laughs> um, so let me just tell you, did you ever do anything with hair products? Because I did an infomercial that called the Split Ender. I don't think we did hair products. We we had a lot of exercise stuff. Yeah, that's we had we had one thing where you would lose weight by breathing. Oh my god! <laughs> I did a diet pill and I was the after, which is illegal. <laughs> I didn't well, know. I was we had the a after. lot of illegal stuff. Yeah, it was the before. <laughs> it was also a hair loss product. True story. True story. Um, no, I, yeah, they flew me out to Utah to shoot an infomercial, and I was like, great, this for this diet pill. And I'm reading this stuff, and I was like... I had no idea you did this many infomercials. Yeah, and I was like, this is very confusing. It, in like, the 90s, infomercials were a big business. This was Huge early 2000, same, yeah. same still. And they were like, oh, you're the after. And they had to shoot it in Utah, because they couldn't do it in L.A., because it was illegal. <laughs> God. So they were shooting it in Utah. I got paid very well, so I was like, I don't, I don't care. But who's my before? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this I, guy right here. I never even got a copy of it. I've never seen it. So there was all kinds of shady stuff with the infomercial stuff because there were, like, you'd have to skirt the law. This, yes. this was, I was working there, like, 19, it was 1998 was when I was working there. And... Um, it was right at the beginning of the time, like when Claritin's, Claritin got, you know, D uh, over the, under the counter, over the counter. It became, yeah, yeah, yeah. you could buy it legally. Yeah. And so they started to, you know, have all those um, drugs that you had to have, that whole list of things like that. Oh, you might get rectal bleeding, your eyes might fall out, you might suddenly be the after in an infomercial, like all, mm -hmm. all this other stuff. And so people would come in and, and pitch products to us. And we'd be in this great big meeting of all the account executives and someone would come in and, and pitch a medical product. And we'd be like, well, there's some new laws about this where you have to divulge like side effects. And people would be like, well, we're not comfortable divulging what the side effects are. We'd be like, well, right. you gotta put it in the commercial that. now. 
Right. It was such a it was such a weird job, but the people were all super creative people because it was an advertising agency, so everyone was of young course. and hip. Um, and direct response at that time was like a, a a big thing, and so we had like cool stuff too. Like you know, we we had a bunch of um, music things, like 101 country hits and things like that. Right. And we did Bosley, the the hair yeah, the hair Bosley. company. We had some Ronco stuff. So you the did cool, do some hair stuff. You yeah. Oh well, yeah, we did we did Bosley. I forgot about that. Yeah. So the one cool thing about the place, in addition to the free food, was there was a, a room, a huge room, filled with all the products. And so you could go down there and be like, hey, do you have an extra fish popper? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can, you can take a couple fish poppers. And so my mother-in-law was, was a big infomercial fan. And so I'd be like, oh, could I get the, the food dehydrator and the, the, the Mr. Microphone? Yeah, 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 here you go. It's like one of those celebrity swag rooms, but for international yeah, crap. But filled with, filled with crap you pay $500 <laughs> for that's worth nothing. But don't listen to Jason Bieber because he loves that aisle in Rite Aid oh, that's seen on TV. That's my go-to in Rite Aid, the uh, seen on TV That's like aisle. the infomercial aisle. Yeah. Um, but we preyed on people like you. You are our mark, Jason. <laughs> It's hard, listen, it's easy to get my eyeballs, but hard to separate me from my money. That's true. <laughs> so the, the last infomercial that I worked on was the Ed McMahon Miracle Fryer. So at the time- Oh, Arrested Development. Was that the, the air fryer in Arrested Development? It was, very, that? it was very close to that. Okay, keep going, sorry, so I got excited. At the time, like, George Foreman had already swept the country, right? Like all celebrities are trying to get their own George Foreman grill at this time. And so Ed McMahon had these partners that worked in different infomercials with him that he'd paid into. So like he had been a partner in like the Playboy Club years and years ago um, and all these other, you know, like mail, mail in your money and you get a, a, a card that says you're a Playboy. Um, and so he had these sort of like vaguely mobbed up dudes that worked for him developing, <laughs> developing infomercials. They're all guys that wear a shirt unbuttoned like too, too many. And right. they were like 65 year old Jewish dudes. I'm like, oh God, like my papa's size is showing <laughs> a lot of chest hair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I worked pretty closely with these guys because I, I developed this whole product with them. But they were such horrible people, and Ed McMahon was so terrible and terrible to me. Really? Uh, just horrible. Just, just a terrible guy. Yeah. And so I was, um, like, it, like, this was going to be his shot. Like, this was going to launch him into the infomercial stratosphere, the Miracle Fryer. Didn't he already do, like, Star Search and... Publisher's, Publishers Clearinghouse, yeah. Tonight Show. What does the man need? Well, apparently he had a problem with the drink. And so he always was needing a little bit more money. Okay. And, you know, he, he was always the host, but he wasn't the, he didn't own the shows, you know? Yeah, like, he was never a star. He was never the guy. He was always just the guy. So the Miracle Friar, <laughs> it's yes. my job to make Ed McMahon the next George Foreman. Process that. build a climb. Yeah. Work it through. The Miracle of the Miracle Friar is that it was baking. <laughs> so it's it an air a, fryer. It was a pan mm -hmm. <laughs> with a grate on it, and you put stuff in the oven and baked it. <laughs> so, like, uh, 
That is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. So was it ever fried? No. Nothing no. fried. If you no. put oil on it, would it? Now you would. The miracle was that the fat would drip out because it was on like a, a cooling grate uh -huh. as it baked. So what happened is you would bake something, it would be extraordinarily dry when yeah. it got out. <laughs> and there you go. So all the people involved with the Miracle Fryer were horrible, awful human beings that were terrible to me. And so <laughs> I, uh, I was- I'm so sorry. This, it's okay, they're all dead. Oh. So. <laughs> I'm less sorry. You were what, in your 20s? This was 19, uh, Yeah, I was 27. Yeah, come on. Everybody's shitty to everybody in their yeah. 20s when they're doing. So right before I am to leave for my honeymoon, um, I have to book all the media for the Miracle Friar. And they were very specific that they didn't want the Miracle Friar to air anywhere where people that weren't white were. Yeah. Very specific. Yeah. We don't want anyone that doesn't have the money to spend on a Miracle Friar. We don't want to be in... African-American neighborhoods. We don't want to be on African-American channels. We don't want to be in, on the, the, the Chinese station in LA. We don't want any of that. And I was like, these people are just monsters. And so they, like, we had this horrible conversation where they're also insulting me the entire time and telling me I'm a moron and all this stuff. And by the way, we want nothing in Jewish neighborhoods either. Right. <laughs> just, just the worst people that I've ever dealt with. And I was like, hmm. So I'm sitting there at my desk I'm gonna give notice when I get back from my honeymoon that I'm gonna quit this job. So I'm like, hmm. So I go in and I buy media like three hours a night on BET overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I buy media in every single place they don't want media. I spend all of the media money in the markets they don't want. That's amazing. And then I went off on my honeymoon and I got back and they were extraordinarily angry. <laughs> and Who's I was the like, monster now? I was like, I, I guess I misunderstood our last conversation because I thought those were the markets that you explicitly told me that you wanted because there's no way you'd explicitly tell me not to have those markets. And Ed McMahon told me I'd never work in the infomercial business again. And what did Ruben say? <laughs> Ruben was like, you fucked the chicken here, Goldberg. You really fucked the chicken. <laughs> he, liked to, he liked to say, fuck the chicken. I don't know why. He's like, you fucked the chicken. Here's the other thing about Ruben. This is a, this is a good thing Look about Ruben. Look up the Miracle Fryer reviews. So, so the infomercial only ran that one week, and that was it. The only, the only thing you're going to find about the Miracle Fryer is in his autobiography. You have to search in Google Books for it. Um, I was really hoping you were going to say it totally backfired and sold like crazy. No, it, it, it tanked. I tanked the whole thing. So Ruben wore a baseball cap, a Nike baseball cap to work every single day. If he was wearing a suit, he still wore a Nike baseball cap. What do you and, have, Ruben? And I was like, that's, that's weird. And so one day I said to him, why are you wearing a baseball cap with a suit? And he said, you know who wears this Nike baseball cap every single day? And I said, no. And he said, Tiger Woods. You know what Tiger Woods is? And I said, a golfer? <laughs> he said, the best golfer ever, a winner, a champion. 
I wear this hat. I'm a winner. I'm a champion. And I was like, oh. okay, Ruben. Okay, Ruben. <laughs> I am going to walk back my earlier feelings about Ruben and wanting to be involved with him. Uh, so that was a terrible, awful, horrible job. And sometimes I have dreams that I'm still employed there. Yeah. Okay, so were you salary or hourly? I know you say you're account executive, but this place sounds kind of shady. I was salaried. I believe I made, this was a, this was a pretty high paying job. I believe I made $31,000 a year. In 1998, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah. How long did you last there? A year and a half. Okay, let me ask you this. So that's all really comical shit. Also, was there anything good? Because that salary doesn't, I mean, come on. Was, was there hor- anything good? Like you have nightmares about it still. So I have lots of good memories of the, of the place because I worked with absolute nut job characters. Um, right. Oh, just, Vanessa worked there though. So Vanessa worked there, who's, who's still my friend and she's a professor at USC now. Um, so there was a lot of weird people that I worked with. I mean, it was actually a super creative group and it was, it was a fun place to work actually until it started to all collapse under the weight of it and everything be, and the, the fact that we were working for a cult began to be, to grow apparent. <laughs> like once we found out like, oh, we work for a cult, like that started, <laughs> that started to change things. But there were fun well, things. You weren't ready to quit yet. But <laughs> there, there was absolutely fun things. And, and, you know, working in an advertising agency surrounded by like a hundred super creative, smart, young people, like that's great. Like that's, yeah. that's sort of like the 30 something dream I had when I was young, like, oh, I'm going to go someplace and everyone's going to wear monochromatic suits and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, this was 1997, 1998. So in Santa Monica, right uh, by the Sentinella arch over there was where the building was mm-hmm. and uh you know we had like three floors and it was you know super cool and fun and there, <laughs> I, I got the greatest insult ever from that there was a guy that worked there named peter and peter bought himself a ferrari and he brought all the account executives downstairs to look at his ferrari and we're all like and peter was a like the original douche and uh he's like showing everyone his car and my coworker Dan um, was—he was looking at it. He's like, "That's a really great car, Peter." And Peter's like, "Yeah, thanks, man, thanks." And Dan just said, "I'm really sorry about your penis." <laughs> and then he just turned around and went upstairs. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and Peter was like, uh, 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 "What?" what? <laughs> Can't go anywhere with that, Peter. That's it. Yeah, it's like just take the L. Um, but no, it was, it was fun until it, it wasn't fun. And I, um, at the time, you know, I hadn't sold my first book yet. I was, uh, I was working on my first book and I was writing short stories and getting short stories published and taking classes still at, um, at UCLA extension at night. And so I would, I would work in Santa Monica until five or six. And then I'd drive across town to UCLA and take a class from seven till 10 at night on writing the short story. And then I'd, go back over Beverly Glen to our, our crappy little apartment in, uh, in Sherman Oaks. And, you know, in memory, it's actually sort of a, a romantic time for me when I think about it, because we had nothing. My, Wendy and I weren't even yet married. Um, and we were living together and we were just sort of trying to figure out like 
what the future was going to be. And I had this, I, I was working this job and um, it was during this time that my grandfather, um, who is long dead now, of course, said to me, what do you want to do? Like, what's your dream? And I was like, I want to write books. You know, I've been working on this novel. I've published a bunch of short stories and stuff. And he was like, well, how about this? Why don't you quit your, this job that you think is sucking your soul and I will pay your bills for a year. And that, that like, that set us on the path, you know, like that, that did it basically. Um, and so like that, but that period before, like when we were, when we just had that crappy job, it was like, we were eating a lot of pop tarts and bobbly and, um, <laughs> you know, our, our big date night was to go to the Galleria and eat in the food court and, you know, watch like three movies in one night at the gallery in Sherman Oaks. Not a bad date night. night. Or, you know, walking down Ventura Boulevard and bumming around um, Tower Records all night long and not buying anything because we didn't have any money. Um, So part of it is like a romantic time in my in my mind. What is not romantic was that I lived in Sherman Oaks and it would take me two and a half hours to get to Santa Monica in the morning. Right. I had a when I was Fresh out of college, pretty much. I had a, I had a job. My very first, very uh, first job was at Pier One for like two months. But then, oh, yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, they they just went down. Yeah, that Jamie, was my high school job. Yeah, Jamie was just shopping for deals on there. Turns out fifty percent off is still fucking outrageously expensive at Pier well, One. Well, do you need a Papasan chair? <laughs> it could be our last chance to get. <laughs> <laughs> this could be the end of the Papasan. God, I, I hope. It's so funny because predating this, like by weeks, it's almost weird. Todd wrote, um, there comes a point in life where you need a Papasan chair and you pick one up off the side of the road. And there comes a point in time in your life where you are the person who leaves that Papasan chair on the side of the road. <laughs> Two weeks later, fucking Pure One's like, rebelling over our business. And I was like, fuck you, Todd. You did this. I did. All the Papasans are on the side of the road now, but cushions are just <laughs> right. very expensive. Well, the cushions, you can segue into a dog bed. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've done that with other things. Yeah. Um, you were saying... Oh, uh, that my second, my second, after period one, my second job uh, of college was also in Santa Monica, and I was doing that, you know, that terrible two-hour commute. I was working kind of, I mean, one of those pseudo-creative, I was working in an ad agency, but not in a creative job right um and it was soul sucking and i was driving for a hundred hours to get there and, and, and i didn't know about your soul sucking advertising job in santa monica yeah i worked at um at uh what is i'm sure now defunct uh advertising agency called bd fox and friends um anyone who would have the gall to open an advertising agency oh, I didn't know about this. and call it BD and Fox friends. and friends. Yeah. Like, I Come feel on, like man. you just, you're, you're, you're advertising. The one thing you're advertising successfully is that you don't know what you're doing. So, <laughs> I have never had the experience of somebody uh, in my family saying they're going to pay a bill for me. In fact, the opposite. Jamie, can you loan me $500 to pay a bill? So I find this like super interesting and really want to know your grandpa. Um, Too late. Eventually, <laughs> he paid bills for a year. You sold a book. And then you had to get a job um, at American Saber because he was like, you're cut off. I said a so, year. You're so, 
I don't know if I had to get the job. I chose to get the job. So what had happened was. Yeah. So, this is the third time somebody said what had happened was. <laughs> so this was in 2004, I think. Yeah, 2004. So, so probably six years later, you've sold two yeah, books. I've sold two books. So my first book, Fake Liar Cheat, came out in 2000. Um, it was a, a good-sized hit. And if you're if you're you can see my house right now you too it's that yep, it's book right, right there. there and then living dead girl and then living dead girl which is that book right there mm -hmm. um those so those two books came out and they came out and that came out in 2000 2002 those books did and then i spent two years writing a really bad book and at the time i was teaching at ucla so i had an i had another teaching job but i was like this third book that I'm writing right now, this is going to be the thing that really breaks me big. Um, because the first two books, I hadn't, I hadn't received a lot of money for the books, but uh, I sold the film rights and gotten a lot of money from that. So I, like, you know, we had some money, but as you guys know, like money and a young person don't stay together that long. Yeah. <laughs> and money we just in bought LA a, doesn't stay together. Right. We just bought a house, and you know, I was 32. That was fiscally conservative of years. Yeah, and so I wrote this book for two years, and while writing the book, I thought it was pretty great. And everyone that read it as I was writing it was like, bro, this is not a good book. <laughs> no, they didn't. It did. So I'd, I'd show pages. What readers do you It didn't have? come out. So like I'd, I'd show pages to Wendy, my lovely wife, and Wendy'd be like, this, this isn't good. And I'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. I wrote Living Dead Girl, and that lost a lot of awards. <laughs> and I'd show the pages to my agent, and my agent would be like, this is a, this is a, a not a good book, Todd. It's, like, <laughs> it, it's not getting any better the more that I read it. So, so I'd send her like a hundred pages at a time and be like, yeah, like, sh should we book the tickets for the Pulitzer like now? Like, should I get a hotel room? Just planning. God. And no matter, no matter what, <laughs> I know, no matter what I did to the book, it just got, got worse. Like there, <laughs> it never got any better. And did you try drawing pictures? I, I, I tried to make it a choose your own adventure at one point, and everything just turned to like, you're in a fire and you die. That was the basic end. So I finally finished that book after two years of writing it. And during this time, also, like, my dog was dying and all kinds of other stuff was happening in my life. So it was like a, it was a bad time. And um, my eventually, like, I finished the book. My agent's like, this is a terrible book. And I'm like, you don't know. Is this the agent you're with now still? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're lucky. And, uh, and she was like, well, we're going to send it to people that we trust who won't tell anyone that they've read it. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get, you know, we'll get like an honest answer. Like, she's like, I work for you. So if this is what you want, I'm going to send it to six people and we're going to get an honest answer out of them. And I was like, and then I'm going to say, I told you so. And I was like, that's right. There's going to be a bidding war is what's going to happen with these six books. That was not what happened. <laughs> no. no bidding war. No bidding. Um, no, no bidding war. No, there was one very nice editor um, who I've been friends with now ever since this. And, and even before who, I think I told you this story, Jamie, um, who uh, he was like, he told my agent, well, Hey, um, 
I'm, I'm interested in the book. I want to talk to Todd. So he'd been the underbidder on my first two books. And we had always wanted to do a deal together and it just hadn't worked out. And so I get on the phone with him and I'm like, that's right. That's right. I'm going to sell this book to this dude. I'm going to show all you people. And he was like, it's a pretty good book. Um, I could probably get you like $2,000 for it. Um, we'd publish probably 1,500 copies of it. You'd get pretty bad reviews. And that'd be the end of your career. Um, but if you need this book, like to get a teaching job or something or for tenure, like I'll do that for you. But that's it. Like you, your time writing books will be over with. So if that's the deal you want, let's do it. And I was like, no, uh, 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 no, I don't, I don't want that deal. And he's like, all right, well then what you need to do is you need to listen to your agent when she tells you that your book is bad and don't embarrass yourself by having it sent out like this, like go write a good book. Wow. So that happened. And I was like, Oh God, like I gotta, I gotta figure out like how I'm going to earn some money in the next year or two while I'm working on another book, which ended up being um, a short story collection. So basically I went and I wrote a short story collection to remind myself how to write. And that sort of then set the path for the, the rest of my career, which was good. Um, so at the time I'd been doing a lot of freelance feature writing and I was a contributing editor to a bunch of different magazines and specifically to Palm Springs Life magazine here in the desert where I live. And so I'd done a lot of work for Palm Springs Life. And so I met a lot of people and I met this guy named Rick. And <laughs> Rick- Lots so of guys, R's in his life, Ruben. Yeah. You guys, so do you guys remember the entertainment book? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. With so, the coupon book? Yeah, the coupon book, yeah. Yeah. So there was that period of time, right, where every year you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm a give this carny that came to my door 50 bucks for that book of coupons. <laughs> That would be too embarrassed to use, but I'd like to eventually take 25% off seafood broiler on Reseda. So I'm going to buy the I know, entertainment book. I know I'm not going to lose money on this. Right. One day I will use this at the Black Angus on Corbin, and I'm going to have <laughs> the wagon wheel to save all yes. wagon wheels. So Rick, um, at some point in his life, decides, well, that entertainment book, there's got to be a secondary market someone else could make their own entertainment book that's not the entertainment book and i'm the guy to do that and i'm going to call it american saver and i'm going to make it about patriotism and discount food <laughs> so, <laughs> so for several years in the coachella valley he's running american saver as this sort of ersatz um entertainment book and then he gets the idea that in order to really be a mogul you got to have your own magazine so Palm Springs Life magazine um, is actually owned by the largest advertising agency in the Coachella Valley. So there's, it's a very small game in this town. So if you want to work with the best advertising agency, well, they're going to sell you ads inside Palm Springs Life magazine. So it's a little bit of a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. And so Rick is like, well, I could do that same thing on a smaller scale with my ersatz entertainment book called American Saver, and I can have my own magazine called American Saver Magazine, where I can then sell ads to the people that are in the Saver program. And so he approached me to be the editor of the magazine. And I was like, I don't know, man, like, this doesn't sound like a great idea. And he said, well, here's, here's how we do it. I would pay you six thousand dollars and from that six thousand dollars you pay yourself and you have to 
pay all your freelancers out of that same budget. So you can write the whole thing yourself or you can hire other people to write stuff. But the magazine is like 30 pages long. So it's like 15 double pages basically. And there's no way I could write all that stuff. And I was like, okay. He's like, but I want there to be a fashion section. I want there to be an entertainment section. I want there to be a travel section. Um, so he, he had these very specific ideas. He's like, and we need to put a hot woman on the cover every single oh, month. Yes, yes, patriotism. Right. And I'll, I'll, I will dig up a copy of the magazine so you guys can get a photo of this. Because the cover would have like Victoria Principal and then like George Washington and a dollar bill on the cover. That's amazing. Is this still so, in print? No, no, no. He I don't think that. so. I don't think anything's still in print. Tab is no. like, I taint American Saber. I, I have got to believe that this guy might also be dead. So I'll, I'll, have, to look, I'll have to look for, to see if Rick is still alive. So I get this budget for $6,000 and I'm like, all right, I'm going to hire all my friends to do this for me. And we're going we're gonna to figure out a way that all of us earn some money from this. And I won't have to stress out about who's writing things because I'm going to hire all of my novelist friends and they're going to use pen names. And they're each going to get like $800 to write about something. Now, the key is that we were also trying to get advertising from different tourism bureaus. And so... Rick would say to me, write about San Diego as a travel destination. And so I'd say, okay. And so I would call, say, novelist Rob Roberge. And I'd say, hey, Rob, <laughs> do you want to make 500 bucks? And Rob would be like, well, yeah, what do I have to do? I was like, you have to write a travel guide to San Diego. And he's like, I don't travel. I've never been to San Diego. I was like, I don't care. He's like, well, where am I going to get the information? Do I have to interview anybody? I was like, no, no, no. No direct quotes. Only things that you come up with on your own. Nothing that requires a secondary source where I have to fact check it. He was like, so I can just write whatever I want? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, where do I get to go to next? I said, where do you want to go to? He's <laughs> like, how about Paris? I was like, how about Paris? <laughs> so <laughs> for about a year and a half, I was the editor of American Saver Magazine. I employed all of my friends. And, you know, we, we, like, I changed the design of it. And I, I got it to actually start looking good. Like, it had looked terrible before. We got it looking like an actual magazine, all this stuff. And I'd have to deal with Rick. And Rick was not a great person to deal with. So Rick was a cancer survivor. And when he'd get upset with you, he'd say, you're making me very upset. I feel like you are bringing the cancer back in me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not bringing the card. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not bringing the cancer back in you. How, like, you had lung cancer from smoking. I didn't cause that. <laughs> so <laughs> he, was, he was not a great guy to work with, to say the least. And so our relationship began to deteriorate a lot. Um, and then, then he kept cutting the budget and cutting the budget and cutting the budget. And so the last time I edited the magazine, um, I, he owed me like $5,000 that I was going to disperse to everybody else. And he wasn't paying, he wasn't paying, he wasn't paying. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to make a magazine for you this month. So I just, and I just stopped cold. I was like, that's it. You're not, you don't get a magazine this month. So you did tank it. I did tank it for that month. And so he's like, well, I can't afford to pay you. And I was like, well, you owe me $5,000. He's like, how about this? I have a trade deal with a game company in town. I can get you a pool table 
and a ping pong table and uh, a stand-up like Asteroids video game console. How about that? And the frat boy in my head was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm listening. The uh, bill for the car, however, <laughs> I could not go to the BMW dealership and be like, here's a ping pong table. <laughs> we'll let you play six rounds of Asteroid. Here's, here, you can play billiards on this if you're interested. <laughs> and it also converts into a poker table if you flip the cover. Ooh. And so I eventually had to threaten him with a lawsuit and he was like, you're, you're threatening me with the lawsuit is bringing my cancer back. And I was like, all right, that's it. I, I'm going to have to call in the big guns. Unfortunately, my sister is a lawyer. And so I called my sister and I was like, hey, this guy owes me $5,000 and he wants to give me a pool table. And my sister's like, let me take care of this problem. So she, so she, she cancer. She, she, she didn't give him cancer and then I got my money. But so here's the thing though. So I, I get my money back from this guy and he's like, well, you and I aren't going to be working together anymore. I was like, no, man, I'm never working for you again. He's like, would your wife like to be the editor? <laughs> she did it, didn't she? she like, for a little while. Did she? <laughs> and, yep. And then, oh and yep. then uh, she left. She's like, I can't do this. And then we hired another friend of mine, Angela Stubbs. I called Angela and I was like, you're probably going to get screwed on this, but it seems like he's got a little bit of money left. You might get three good months at $5,000 a pop where you can write it all yourself or keep the money. And she's like, I'll just keep the money. Like, I'm not going to hire other people. And then she was like, this is crazy. I can't write this. I can't. He wants me to write a feature story on sweaters. I can't write, <laughs> I can't write this. <laughs> That's amazing. So as usual, I, invariably in, in these weird side jobs that I've had, I always try to involve my friends in the strange Ponzi scheme as well. As, as good Ponzi schemes go, you've got to bring your friends in. That's What I find interesting, though, that's is, the fresh that, meat. is that they just come to you in the Coachella Valley, where I sought out these kinds of jobs on Craigslist here in Los Angeles. and I get offered stuff all the time. On Craigslist? No, on Craigslist, <laughs> primarily. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, I had somebody want to pay me in meals. I did their taxes. Like, she hired me on Craigslist to do taxes. And I did, and it was like, I did, I tallied the hours, I invoiced, whatever. My dad worked for the IRS. He had us start doing taxes when we were very young. Why do and I do our taxes? Just as me, that <laughs> out. And then she tried to pay me in dishes of enchiladas. And her husband was an animator for Disney. And I was like, you should, you should have just be. taken cells from Disney. You could sell that shit on eBay. Yes, give me something that is value, <laughs> not your enchiladas. I would murder an enchilada right now. You guys, we're in the pandemic. I haven't had a meal I haven't cooked since February. Put on a mask, go to the grocery store. You're going to be okay. Because you don't have any cases there. I, I'm still scared. You should be scared. I'm scared I can't, too. I can't I stop been to being. Store in seventy days. I can't stop being Jewish. So they the, get the groceries delivered. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, if they can gro deliver groceries, they can deliver some some restaurant food. Yeah, I've had that thought as well, <laughs> but I haven't haven't gone through with. You it. Haven't pulled the trigger. Well, he no. doesn't live in LA, where people in LA are very like conservative about this. Like you. Our local places, we just order from family places, and we've only done it like three times. But you go, and it's like they are in hazmat suits making your food. Right. I don't trust that in the Coachella Valley because you've got a lot of Trumpeters out yeah. there. And I'm like, they're like, no, man, 
what I love. And I'm like, yeah. I went I to CVS today and the entire pharmacy was wrapped in plastic. That, that sounds perfect. Yeah. Well, so I was at the car dealership yesterday. So oh, this yeah. Is, this Wait is an experience where I almost went to the grocery store, but you went to the car dealership? Well, that's outside. Well, no, so this is inside, but my key for my car stopped working. So oh, I had to go buy another key. In order to buy the key, you have to show up there in person and prove that you haven't stolen the car, apparently. So I went to the car dealership and I'm all masked up and the whole car dealership is covered in plexiglass. Everyone there has masks on. I open the door, a guy washes it behind me. Like it's a whole, like it's a German car company. So it's very, very Prussian. Everything's clean. The trains are moving very quick. I guess it's maybe Bavarian, wherever that is. And so I'm in the parts department buying my key and I'm masked up and there's some old dude who's buying like a, like a BMW pair of sunglasses because you need that in this world. Mm -hmm. And so then the sales guy comes out of the back and he doesn't have a mask on and he sees okay. me and this other guy. And he's like, oh, everyone's got masks on. And I was like, and I'm just like, yeah, maybe you've heard there's a vast global pandemic. But I didn't say that at that point. And he's like, you know, I'm not too worried about it. You know, the, the way I think about it is, um, you know, just, just, I might as well just get it. And then six weeks later, it's over and it's done with. And, you know, besides, wearing that mask gives me a sore throat. Oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, it's over and done with unless you die. And he's like, the odds of that are pretty slim. I said, or you kill me. And he was like, well, let's agree to disagree. And I was like, let's agree to set you on fire. Yeah. <laughs> let's agree that you're the asshole here. I, let's agree I, that my new side job is assassin. There you go. <laughs> I mean, we had a woman and her child walk by us today, and um, she, our dog was like, she, no mask, they're not wearing masks, fine, it's outside, but still, the order in LA is, if you leave your house now, you have to wear a mask, they clearly did not care, and she goes, we're very nice people. And to her dog, by. to her dog. And I was like, I hate you, get your mask, like, you're the reason my son is terrified to come outside. You're the reason my our son thinks we're terrible parents yeah. on video. <laughs> I know it makes me feel terrible, but I want to circle back to something really quick because yes. you tried to get uh, somebody tried to pay you in a pool table in yeah. our game. Jason Bieber has a job now as a computer consultant. He owns a computer company, and uh, we do the barter system. Yeah, with certain yeah with certain clients, I definitely barter i uh we're getting the better end of the stick with our barter <laughs> we barter for veterinary care service at the best vets office oh wow ever yeah wow just yeah. bartering for for tramadol for your arthritic dog is not a bad gig no i'm saying i've gotten teeth cleanings I've gotten... Wow, that's expensive yeah, yeah. well she... so am i <laughs> Wow, I would I would barter my vet for veterinary care. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Every time I take a new computer client, I look around and I'm like, I'm sizing it up for for their needs, but also like, what? How can you guys help me? If my vet were like, Todd, will you write me a short story and then I'll fix your puppy? I'm like, hell yeah! You want to be yeah. a bad guy or a good guy? What yeah. do you want? Yeah. And I'll even cut you in like two percent of the back end on a TV deal. That's I've, generous. <laughs> I've gotten offered a lot of bartering systems. Like our Airbnb 
we get a lot of people who go, um, hey, I'm a photographer. If you'll give me a week free staying at your place, I'll shoot photos for you. Hey, I got you. an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> and bro, you're trying to book our place right now. Obviously, the photos we have fucking worked. <laughs> what is wrong with people? Yeah, that, see, I'm of the uh, opinion that people, unless you are comfortable enough that you don't need the extra money, that exposure is a thing people die of. It's not a thing you need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now more than ever. Now more than ever. That's so true. I didn't think that Todd had this much relatability in side hustles because to me, as my mentor and, and as somebody that I idolize, I'm all like, oh, he came out of the womb successful. <laughs> So for me, this, like, has what? Been, that yeah, this has been um, an incredibly delightful. Episode. Well, can can I tell you about when I actually stopped with the side hustles? Yes. The actual experience. So the actual experience uh, of me stopping my side hustle um, involves my lovely wife, who's about to close the blinds behind the camera. Um, so nice. I was I, I was writing a bunch of freelance stuff. Still, this was in like 2010. And at, th at this point, um, I was pretty successful. <laughs> my wife just crawled across my desk to close the blinds. That's awesome. <laughs> Good job, Wendy. Uh, Wendy's side uh, hustle is, is, <laughs> is closing the blinds. Yeah. Um, so I was writing a, a lot of freelance stuff, but for years and years, I'd been writing for Palm Springs Life Magazine. I was a contributing editor there for like five years. And so my main beat at Palm Springs Life Magazine was golf, a sport. I don't play and have almost no interest in. But I was the guy that would go interview the famous golfers, or if there was some new golf technology, I would write about that. For a little while, I was the food critic, but the rub on that deal was you couldn't write a negative review of any of the restaurants. <laughs> so I was the best food critic ever because I was, I was always nice. I got to eat for free, and then those places would close because the food was awful. But so I was, I was tasked with um, doing an article on advancements in sprinkler technology on golf courses. So I was to write 700 words on lawn sprinklers and be paid 500 American dollars to write those 700 words. <laughs> I had to interview like 15 scientists. I had to like go and contact all the rainbird people in Phoenix and interview all of them. I had to talk to like gardeners and golf course designers to write this 700 word piece for $500. So and this one did have to be fact-checked. This one did have to be fact-checked. <laughs> and this was for an actual publication. And every time I would sit down to write this article that I had to do 80,000 interviews on for a thing I had absolutely no interest in, I just couldn't write it. I was like, I didn't, like, why, am, why at this point in my life am I writing an article about fucking sprinklers? Like, at what point in my life did I think, you know what I want to do? I want to write about a sprinkler. I absolutely want to write 700 words about a sprinkler. And I was just sitting at my desk and I was just holding my face and my lovely wife was like, what is wrong with you? And I was just like, I have to write a 700 word piece that someone's going to pay us $500 for about sprinklers. And I, it's killing me. I don't want to do it. I can't imagine that there's any reason I need to do this. Why am I doing this? I can't believe this. And Wendy was like, you know, you make a good living now. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, no, what I mean is you don't need to do this anymore. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, what? 
She's like, you have 11 books in print. It's like, right. She's like, you don't need to write freelance articles anymore. And I was like, oh, 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 we have money? She's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You've, you've graduated. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's why we bought that other house that we live in now. And you put the hardwood floors in? I was like, huh. So if I complete this story, I can then tell them I don't want to write about sprinklers anymore? And she was like, you could have said that five years ago. I was like, huh. Okay, well, all right. Yeah, all right. And that was the last article I wrote for Palm Springs Life Magazine. So you did write it. I did write it, and that was it. And then I wrote a short- Is it up here on the wall behind you? It might be. (laughs) It's somewhere in print. And then I wrote a short story about a guy who is the foremost expert in sprinklers called uh, Rainmaker that I wrote directly afterwards so that all the research that I had used, I could at least then use for something that I really liked. Uh, Put that story story in a book. (laughs) It's funny because um, I don't have 11 books, but Jason Bieber was like, Jamie, you can stop taking shitty jobs now. We're okay. (laughs) We're okay. Stop taking every job somebody offers you. Because I would literally be like, oh, you want to pay me to do that? Yep, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's fine. Well, That's the thing about being an artist, right? Like you're always afraid that the last thing that you do is the last thing that you'll ever be able to do. Exactly. The fear for me is the same every single day, um, which is that I'm going to turn on the computer, I'm going to sit down to write, and whatever that magic trick is that I've mastered over the course of the last 49 years, somehow, like, I won't be able to do that magic trick anymore. Yeah. Um, And so for a long time, fear ruled my life. And that fear was like, okay, take $500 and write about sprinklers. Take $500 and, you know, write about traveling to San Diego, though you've never traveled to San Diego. Like, that's why Rob wrote that story. Um, And so it takes a long time to sort of, uh, train yourself out of the fear that is part of the getting to that place. I mean, I, I'm, I know you guys have talked about this on the show before, but recognizing when you reach a successful stage in your career that you can stop things you did to get there, some of them, is it's pretty liberating. Um, and now I only, like, you know, I, I'll do some freelance stuff when I want to. Like, I'm a, I'm a book critic for USA Today, and... Um, you know, doesn't pay a tremendous amount of money, but I love to do it. Right. And like, that's the kind of stuff I love to do. I don't ever want to write a feature story about something I don't care about again, but if there's something I'm really interested in or something that a place approaches me about and says, hey, are you interested in writing about that? I'm happy to say yes, and I'm also happy to say no. Um, And the ability to say no, I think only comes from the experience of having been miserable, (laughs) having done things I've said yes for. If that right. makes sense. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I love, you know, right now I'm a full-time student and I have a part-time job, but I love the job. It's, you know, it, it's uh, tangentially. Nope. Nope, say it for me. Tangent- tangentially. I can't speak. Um, tangerine? Tangerine. Tangerine. It, it aligns with, <laughs> our, you know, like I'm, I'm in casting and I get to write funny stuff and, you know, I don't have to take shitty jobs. I can, you know. Right. You finally get to a place where, yeah, you have to recognize that. And I think you can't really get to that place where you recognize it until you've done a lot of shitty jobs. Right. <laughs> like, you if know, you've never had a shitty job, then this is not the show for you. <laughs> the other thing, too, for me was realizing in... Um, I, I think some people good. listen just out of Schadenfreude. 
Right, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Realizing in 2007, basically, that like I could stop doing a lot of shitty jobs if I decided that the time I devoted to hustling for shitty jobs, I devoted full time to teaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, where Which, by the way, is an awesome side job that you have. Oh, it's, a, it's a great side job, and I love it. And, and I've, yeah. I've, I've taught since my first book came out. So my first book came out in 2000, and I immediately got a teaching job. Um, and it's, I love to do it. I didn't know that I was going to have my own graduate school. Like, like that was not something that was ever in my mind. I just thought I'd be a quirky creative writing professor and like well-loved. Wearing tweed. Wearing tweed and just like sort of smoking though I don't smoke and standing in a quad. I've always mm -hmm. liked a quad. Um, but once I started teaching and realized how much I enjoyed it and how in fact being in the classroom and reading other people's work was a, was a creative exercise for me and mm -hmm. that I could walk out of teaching and, and stop critiquing someone's work and still go write. That was different than any other job I'd ever had. Like every other job sucked me so dry that I never wanted to write, but reading students work. So when I read, when I read Jamie's book, I don't feel like, Oh, I never want to write again. I read Jamie's book. I get done. I'm done critiquing. I close that file and I'm like, I'm ready to go work because right now, like I'm fully engaged in the creative process. Like my brain is completely engaged in the creative process because I've just been reading and critiquing someone else's work. And that's when I get my best work done is when like all the other crap of my life has disappeared and I'm just the writer. Um, and so I made that decision, the, the full-time teaching thing in, in 2007, I just previously just taught sort of adjunct. Um, and that's worked out really well. You know, the, the, the teaching is the, the most edifying thing outside of my family that I do. And to find a thing that you're passionate about that doesn't make you angry for the other thing you're passionate about with, with your creative life is, is yeah. so important. Um, hopefully you can find a, a job that you do that pays your rent in between your writing gig. Because if you're writing books, man, it takes a long time to be one of those people who earns a lot of money. And then yeah. it also takes a long time to write a book. You know, it's 18 mm -hmm. months for me to write a book and you don't get paid everything up front in those 18 months. But we should um, talk about your book that's coming we out. Should. Yes. Because I'm super excited for it. Me too. Um, and then Me too. It's coming out in 2020 and um, the book cover- 2021. Oh, 2021, sorry. It is 2020 now. Oh God, you guys are so tired. I've gotten, I've, I've had the great privilege to see the book cover. That was chosen. You have. That's that right. amazing. Um, so that is coming out 2021. It's a story collection. If you haven't read Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, you which need I to, have, which you have, um, they're so good. I've uh, read Gangster Land twice, but you need to twice. Read both. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, a lot. It's a long book. Um, <laughs> I'm a fast reader. Um, but anyway, so it's you a short should, Bible. You should get onto those. Living Dead Girl is really good, too. A uh, little bit of a different tone. A um, little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Someone on Twitter tagged me the other day saying, I had read your previous books, and then I bought Living Dead Girl, and it was not quite what I expected, and that I want to kill myself. And I was like, yeah, sorry about that. I loved it. In fairness, um, I feel like the title kind of... Yeah. I, I read I, that, I'm like, yeah, I probably want to kill myself. Sometimes when I get hate mail from people, they'll be like... Uh, I purchased your book, Gangsterland, and I was very offended by the swearing and the murder in it. And I was like, the book's called Gangsterland. The cover is of a man turning into a gun. What'd you think was going to happen in the book? And they're like, there's a lot of foul language in it. I was like, yeah, you're right. 
That's fair. I just Stupid, people. but fair. I yeah. hate people. Um, so, okay, so get that before the story collection comes out yes. in 2021. Because um, the, the story collection kind of dives into the lives of these uh, characters yes. in a way. The story collection, it's called The Low Desert. And um, there's, I think there's 11 or 12 new stories in it. And um, about half of them are in the gangster land universe. And then another half of them are in a different universe of uh, a thing that I'm writing about uh, a sheriff at the Salton Sea in the 1960s. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a little project I'm working on for both uh, print and the glittering box in your living room. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so... That's my that's my next thing. It's so great, and um, the outside in uh, essay is out right now. We're gonna put a link to it because it's so fucking good. And Thank that you. won you a California Desert Arts Council grant, which it is, did. It did. Um, awesome. And I saw Maggie got one, and Rob got one. It's just it's incredible writers, um, and the piece is amazing. So we're gonna link to that, you guys. Um, Thank you on the page um not that todd needs us to link to anything but um because look i'm always about making that paper yo making that i gotta make it rain with those nonfiction pieces yo (laughs) i just really want to say that i was really nervous about having you on the show and you made it very easy like you do everything else and i wholly appreciate that thank you so much thank you for being here. here thank you for opening up and thank you for always being honest like you're just awesome that's thanks Thanks for having me on the show. And hey, listeners, you should know this. This is an important thing. Jamie Parker Stickle, she's about to be a big time famous writer. <laughs> Thank you. you guys I'm, not, I'm, I'm not gonna say what year the book will come out. It'll be soon, but you'll be reading Jamie Parker Stickle. You're gonna be walking into Barnes and Noble when we're allowed to walk into bookstores again. And there her book is going to be, and you'd be like, how did I know about this book? And then you're gonna be like, Todd Goldberg. Big Ten Famous Writer, he told me once in that weird little podcast I heard. <laughs> and then you'll, you'll buy an Ed McMahon Miracle Fryer. The miracle <laughs> is, it's called baking. <laughs> All I kept thinking when you described it was the turkey at Thanksgiving that sits on the thing and the drippings the go roasting below. Pan. And you base, it's a roasting pan. Yeah. There's no fry. It's a miracle. It's a goddamn Christmas miracle. The Ladies, miracle is a little bit of panko and baking. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Ed McMahon Hour on Make That Paper Podcast. We'd like to thank Dad Goldberg for being here. We are your hosts, Jamie Becker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. Oh my God, I'm so excited for next week's guest, Jason Bieber. Me too. It's Molly Erdman. Molly Erdman from Second City. Molly Erdman from The Break Room. From The Break Room. Molly Erdman, who has become crazy famous for her amazing Elizabeth Warren impression on her channel, Warren Unfiltered. Oh my God, you can also, also, also get her on Cameo as herself or Warren. I I think I'll double down. I'm going to double down. I'm going to ask her... If um, if they're still writing for the break womb, and if I can, st- like, I don't know. Audition? Yes. You want to get in the break womb, don't you? I won't be in the break womb. This could be your chance. Join us all three. She showed on Monday, made love on Tuesday.
Rising 